Old Testament reading comes from Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you or chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Our New Testament reading and sermon passage is from 1 John chapter 4. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Lord has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. For those of you who are watching online, a warm welcome. And if you're visiting for the first time, a warm welcome to you. We're very glad that you are here. Uh, if you've been at Cornerstone for quite some time, you've been seeing how God has been adding to our midst, and it's a good thing. And so uh, we're very thankful to see how God is growing our church. We're in a series. We're looking at this letter called First John. And we're talking about what does it mean to have fellowship with God. And fellowship with God is not just knowing the facts about God, but it's actually having relationship with God. As we've been seeing in John, it's having this ability to walk with God and to enjoy God. Now today we have a very familiar theme, and it's love. And what we're going to see is that um, love is really the heart of fellowship with God. In love, God wants us to be near to him. In love, God is the one who goes to great lengths to bring us back to him. So today we'll have three points. Uh, the first one is the cost of love, verses 13 and 14. 
Then we'll have the assurance of love, verses 15 through 18, and then the overflow of love, which would be verses 19 through 21. What's our main point? Our big idea is this. Jesus has laid down his life for us in love, and so we are to fearlessly love one another. Because Jesus has laid down his life for us in love, we are to fearlessly love one another. Before we go further, would you please pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you make my words to be your words? For if I utter things in my own strength, it is but foolishness. But Holy Spirit, when you give me your words, they become your words to the people. And so God, what we're asking also is that you give us hearts to receive your word, that you give us minds to receive them, and that we would actually then be doers of your word, not just listeners and hearers, that you would teach us what it means to fearlessly love those around us. So God, this is something we can't do on our own. And so we call out to you, we cry out, God, would you so empower us now? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the first point is the cost of love. And what we see is love is costly. It requires sacrifice, sacrifice of time, sacrifice of money, Sacrifice of your possessions, sacrifice of your space, sacrifice of perhaps even your life. Look at uh, verse 13, see how he begins. By this we know. Now what he's doing is, is he's referring back to section just prior, which is verses 7 through 12, and there he's speaking about love. Now if you have your Bible, look at verse 10, which is not printed in our bulletin today. This is what Pastor Clay looked at last week, but we're going to reference it because we need to have this review. There in verse 10, he says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the propitiation of our sins. And what we need to see is how Christianity, uh, this type of love is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions of the world. When you consider the religions of the world, they say something like this, uh, you must have a certain level of performance to show that you are good enough to be acceptable to God. And so you need to have loyalty. There should be no other gods. You need to have obedience. Do what that God asks you. There needs to be sacrifice. And so in the Old Testament days, you know, ancient times, it would be you know, like your crops or an animal. In today's day and age, that would be your money and your time. Basically, the religions of the world say something like this. I need to show that I love God, and then he will show that he loves me. In other words, God, he rewards my performance. God's love is then owed to me. I earn it, I deserve it, or at least I deserve something good when I am doing good. Now, Christianity is something completely different. So Christianity comes and says, God's love is not earned, it's not deserved. In fact, God's love is a gift. It's a gift of grace. Again, uh, verse 10 in chapter 4, God's love is what comes to us first. God loved us first. And it's not because we were loving, it's not because we got our act together. And so Christianity is not do more, it's not try harder, it's not go to church. All of those things, though good, are just performance of religion. What we see here is God loves because he wants to love, 
and he wants to love because he is love. And what we see in this text is that God and his love comes at an infinite cost. Now when we use terms like infinite cost, that sounds like church talk, and so we need to say, well, what does that really mean? If God is loving us at infinite cost, uh, what is that cost? Look at verse 14, our text today. There he says, the testimony of God's love is this, he has sent his son as a savior. So let's ask a series of questions to get at what he's saying here. Now the first question is, well, what is a savior? Don't think too hard, one who saves. Um, From what does he save us? The text says, from the curse that is due for our sin. So what is the curse? In one sense, the curse is the brokenness of the world and how the world is disintegrating, it's falling apart. You can just look at the news and you can see that this world is broken just by seeing the war that's going on in Russia and Ukraine, but even wars prior to that, the world is broken. But there's another sense in which the world is cursed, and it's this. We have separation from God. We are not right with God. Our relationship with God is broken. Um, That separation of God expresses itself in death. We no longer live forever. We now die, but also that separation of God ultimately leads to hell, which is an eternal separation from God. When we think about sin, sin is not just breaking rules, sin is actually breaking a relationship with God. It's saying, God, rather than putting you first, I put myself first. Rather than loving others, I love myself. And so God, in his justice, he gives us over to that separation, and that separation then is is that we live and die in that broken relationship. And then how does Jesus then save us from the curse? The Bible says is that he becomes the curse for us. Again, verse 10, he is the propitiation of our sins. As we saw back in chapter two, verse two, some repeat here, that word propitiation we saw there is that God himself, he appeases, if you will, his own justice that is due for our sin by becoming the sin offering in our place. In other words, Jesus becomes sin in our place, and he takes that sin for us. What we need to see today is that this is a great cost. This is what we call an infinite cost. As Pastor Clay demonstrated and showed last week from the text, God gave his only son at great sacrifice. For here, the father gives his son to be killed. And not just to be killed, but to be mocked. Not just to be mocked, but to be mocked by people who are spurning and despising God. And so we see this, and the son, what is his sacrifice? He gives his life. Jesus, when he died upon the cross, he really did suffer the infinite pains of hell for those who are God's elect. He really did suffer. And you think about the Trinity, the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. They exist in perfect unity before this. And when Jesus is dying upon the cross, he is separated somehow for us because of our sins. How sacrificial that is. But there's more. When we see this love, and we see that it's at a great cost, what we see is that it's without demand. God does not require something in return. 
what we say is that this love is called free, it's called unconditional. The contrast is think about our own love. Often our love is met with demands. I will give you something if you give me something in return. Um, I'll give you some time if you give me the same amount of time in return. Or at least you write me a thank you note for the time that I gave you. I will give you some money or possessions, but I'll have some qualifiers as long as you use it wisely, as long as you use it in a non-foolish way. Or I will give you some use of my space as long as you're a good guest. Clean up after yourself, help out, don't be a complainer. So often what we do is we have a cost analysis with our love. I will give you this much if you will give me this much in return. I will take the cost of loving you if I know that I can at least make something in return. When God does the cost analysis of loving us, it costs him everything. It costs him everything. And there's actually nothing in return because he does not require anything of us in return. So then why does God still do this? Why? Because he wants us near us. And this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus has come to restore fellowship with God. Jesus has come to save us at an infinite cost. Why? Because he has infinite love for us. Now, when we stop and think about God's love, it's, it's unbelievable. Why would God love us this way? Why would God love us to this degree? Why would God sacrifice in such a way? Because that's who he is. He is love. Now, how do we know that we have this love? That's our second point, the assurance of love. God's love is so certain that you have no fear. And no fear not only on the day of judgment, but then any day, any day. Look at verses 15 through 18. Here again we see some, uh, if you will, more repeated themes. Look at verse 15. There he's talking about confessing the Lord Jesus. And he's going back to chapter 4, verse 3. There he says, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is God is not from God. And as we talked about in uh, that passage, this is like when Peter, the apostle, in Matthew chapter 16, he makes what's called the good confession. If you recall, the people are saying, uh, well, who? Jesus is asking, who do you think I am? And they're like, well, maybe one of the prophets, maybe Jeremiah, maybe Elijah. And he pointedly asked, well, who do you, who do you think I am? And Peter the Apostle says, you're the Son of God. And that's a loaded, wonderful statement. For what Peter is saying is, Jesus, you are the one who has promised from God to come and save us and to save this world. It's really the heart of the most basic Christian profession of faith. Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are the one who has come to die in my place. Jesus, you died on the cross so that I might be forgiven. And what John is saying here is when you have faith in Christ like this, you have fellowship with God. He is abiding with you. That's the word he used. And he's saying you are saved. Look at verse 16. He begins and he says, we know and we believe that we have this love of God. And then look at what he says. We abide in this love. That word abide goes back to chapter 2, verse 6, where he talks about we walk the way that God walks. We walk with him. And when we walk with God, what John is saying is we demonstrate, we have assurance, 
we show that we actually belong to God with this deep faith relationship. We trust him. Look at verse 17. Now, he says, this love is perfected in us. Again, a repeated theme. Chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 12. And what we see there is that word for perfection is not perfectionism. He's not saying you got to try harder. In other words, do more to get saved. Instead, what he says is, chapter 2, verse 1. When you sin, you have an advocate. Jesus Christ, your righteousness. What John says is when you repent, when you turn back to God and you turn to him in faith, what he says is you're turning and you're saying, Jesus, I am trusting you to cover my unrighteousness. Jesus, I need you to clothe me. I need you to cover me with your perfection. Jesus, I stand without perfection. Jesus, you are my perfection. You are my holiness before a perfect God. Now we see that this love, it's perfected in you by taking away your fear. Look at how verse 17 continues. Because we are so loved by God, we have no fear on the judgment day, but instead we have confidence. Now again, he's already spoken of confidence, uh, particularly about the second coming. Chapter two, verse 28, chapter three, verse two. And he says, what is our reason for our confidence on the day of judgment? And it's very simple. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus has appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. So allow me to give a quick review of a sermon past. So a few weeks ago, we talked about the passive and active obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. The passive obedience is this. Jesus died upon the cross to take away all of our sins. He paid the full penalty of our sin. Our sins are forgiven because they're all placed upon Jesus. And when he died, he paid the price. And so it is paid in full. Another way to think about this is all our unrighteousness is put upon Christ and the guilt of our sin is removed. We are now innocent. We are now clean. The curse that was due for our sin, Jesus Christ passively received upon himself. Now, if all that Jesus did, though, was to die for our sins, yes, we are innocent, yes, we are guiltless, but we are not righteous. We have done nothing to obey the law of God, which, which our righteousness requires. And so there's not only the passive obedience of Jesus, but there's what's called the active obedience of Jesus. His whole life was one of actively obeying the law of God. One thing that's remarkable is Jesus never once sinned. He always did what his heavenly father asked him to do. And those of us who are parents, just imagine your kids always doing what you ask them to do. So that's remarkable to us. And here is Jesus. He is sinless. He is perfect. He is righteous. And by faith, we say, Jesus, it is your righteousness what I need. I need your right record. And it's given, it's imputed to me by faith. And so we say, Jesus, you died for our sins. You paid the payment, the righteous payment that the law demands. But not only did you die, but you lived for my righteousness. You lived the law's demand. 
perfectly on my behalf. Now, someone might say, okay, I get it. It's a review. How do I know? How do I know that all this is really true for me? Look at verse 13. God gives us his very spirit. When you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you are given the Holy Spirit. God himself comes and dwells within you. You are a temple of the living God, and the Holy Spirit comes and he testifies that you belong to God, that you are born again, that you are a much-loved child, a daughter or son of the living God. But there's even more. Again, go back to chapter uh, 4, verse 17. Look at the very end of 17. There he says, as Christ was in the world... So now you are living this life of Christ in and through him. What he's basically saying is this. You are different today if you are in Christ because Christ is in you. Let me put it differently. God's love is making a difference in your life when you believe upon him. Let me put it even more differently, if you will. How do you know that this love of God is real? It's changing you. You're no longer the same. God's love is perfecting you. Now, when we talk this way, this becomes uncomfortable because then we might have this thought, I don't feel like I'm changing. I don't know if this is really true in my life. And so what's going on is John is serving as a warning and he's saying, you need to examine your faith. Are you just believing or are you believing and acting? Remember, part of the context of the letter of John is this. There's a group of heretics a group that's not believing the true gospel, and they're called Gnostics. And part of their heresy is, if you just have the right knowledge about God, that is enough. And what John is saying is, look, you can have all this knowledge of God, but if there is no evidence of God changing you, you're not born again. You do not belong to him. You're not really part of his family if you're not being changed. Now, a person here might now say, okay, I think that might be me, though. I'm not being changed, so what do I do? Our very first scripture memory verse addresses this. So if you can bring that up, we're gonna read this out loud together. So let's read this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, if you're here today and you're saying, I don't think God's changing my life, the first thing that we do then is we confess. And that is a gift of God because God brings confession. God gives repentance. And if you are one who is repenting genuinely, as this text says, then what we're saying is, is God, I want you to make that change in my life. So Christianity, it's not rules, but it's relationship. It's a simple trust that Jesus, you have come to take away my sin. And when you know and experience that you are forgiven, it takes away all fear. It takes away the fear not only of judgment day, but every day. And again, one of our memory verses is one from our passage. So if you would, put up 18. Let's read this together. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Why are we not to fear? Jesus takes away our punishment. 
Why are we not to fear the curse was put upon him? Why are we not to fear even death? Death itself is conquered by our Lord Jesus Christ. And what we can say is all is right with God because of what Jesus has done. I am accepted, I belong, I am loved, I have fellowship because of what Christ has done. That takes away fear. And when we have this assurance, this love of God, we cannot keep it to ourselves. And that's our third point, the overflow of love. When we have God's love, we are empowered to boldly love others before they even first love us. Look at verse 20. Again, a repeated theme. If we say we love God, but we hate our brother, remember brother is like someone in the church, then we're liars, and the love of God is not in us. And look at his rationale. How can we say that we love what we cannot see, God, <laughs> but then we don't love what we can see, our brother, our sister, and the Lord? He's basically saying, how can you say you have faith in God whom you cannot see, but then not have faith in your fellow Christian who you can see? Look at verse 21. Again, a repeated command. What's the command? Love. And whenever you love, and whenever you're loved by God, you are also then to love your brother. Now go back to verse 19. Again, this is our shortest memory verse, and it's this. We love because he first loved us. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. Well, who are we to love? Well, obviously we're to love God because he first loved us, but look at the context of what he's saying, 20 and 21, we are now to love others because he first loved us. This love of God is an overflow. It's an overflow in us to others. And I would say most of us get that. I get that. And so when I'm so loved by God, it makes sense that it starts to flow out of me. I think the challenge is, is what this text is saying is this. As God loves us first, we must first love others and not wait for them to love us. Let me put it differently. We need to love people first. We don't have to wait for them. I think this is a really hard thing because what it says is love makes the first move. We've all been in arguments, um, particularly if you're married, and... <laughs> Think about this, when you're arguing with a spouse or if you're, you know, have a sibling, um, so young people, you're arguing with your sibling, and you both are unwilling to budge in your argument. You ever been there? You know, you're arguing and you just don't want to concede your position because you both think you're right. And so here you are, you both think you're right, but you don't want to apologize because guess what? If you apologize, that could be what? then somehow you're giving in, somehow it's perceived that your position is actually wrong and not right, and who wants to do that? And so you're making this cost analysis in your head. If I make the first move of love, then I'm setting a precedent. And if that precedent is then made, then I'm always going to have to be making this sacrifice. Do I really wanna do that? See, we're making this cost analysis. If I make the first move of, move of love, I have to die to myself. I have to die to being right. I have to die to my demand that the other person concedes that I'm actually the right one here. Who wants to do that? Here, John is saying, 
Because God loves you first, you are to love first. It's a command. Just as you love God, you are to love your brother and sister. And just as God loves you first, you are to love others first, even if it is painful. Friends, are you willing to do that? See, that's what the text is asking. Are you willing to make the first move of love? Even when you're in an argument, a heated argument, are you saying, I'm going to slow down, and God, I need to love first. I don't have to wait for it. I can do this because, God, you have loved me this way. I want to make a very specific application to our young people, and I'm very thankful for our young people. Um, It's so neat to see how God is growing our church, and we have a lot of young people in primary praise right now, but uh, we have like over 25 kids now that are like four and below. There's a lot of good things going on. I'm going to address kind of the teens and preteens. What I want to put before you is many of your peers are lonely. A lot of your friends feel like they have no other friends. A book that I've referenced uh, many times is a book by Gene Twenge, and it's called iGen. So it's talking about the generation that's coming up. And what she uh, realizes is that the generation that's coming up is the most connected generation. Um, Digitally, they're in each other's lives. I mean, think about it. Everyone knows what everything you're doing. And even though they're the most connected generation, what she finds, they are the most isolated and lonely generation in recorded history of humanity. That's a big statement. And what she finds is this mentality. So she, here she is, she's, she's talking about the mentality of the young people today. People say this, I would love for someone to reach out to me. I would be a friend with a person if they would be a friend to me first. She finds that there's anger Why is that person ignoring me? Why are they not paying attention to me? Why are they not responding to my social media? So then there becomes a fear. And the fear then is, what's wrong with me? If they're not responding to me, if they're not loving me first, I'm all wrong. And then it leads to despair. I'm so lonely. I am so lonely. Though I am connected, I feel all alone. And what she points out is the irony is this, everyone else is thinking the same thing. And so the person who you want to be friending you first, they're actually thinking the same thing about you. Why are you not friending me first? So here's a very specific application for you young people. If you eat lunch in a lunchroom and you see someone sitting there all by themselves, would you go eat with them? Would you make it a point to go sit with them? Would you bring a group of friends and go be a friend to that person who's all alone? For those of us, remember the old days when you would pass notes in the hallway? All right? Kids don't do that anymore. Um, But you who are young, would you pass a text? Um, And I don't know all the TikTok stuff, and I don't even know if that's appropriate, so I'm not even going to mention it because I don't know. And I show my stupidity and age when I talk that way. But would you pass notes to people and share with them you're thinking about them, you care about them, you want them to know that they are loved? What I'm saying is, is would you make the first move? 
to talk to a peer, to a neighbor, to a classmate. Now, as we broaden this out, you're kind of thinking as adults, we can do the same thing, and what we think is that's risky. If I do that, if I do that with my neighbor, they might think I'm weird. They might. But you know what? They'll get over it when they see you being nice. You might think that's risky because I might say something stupid. You might. But they'll get over it when they see you being nice. They might reject me, maybe. But they will forget when they see you being nice. They will not forget about that. It stands out when you make the first move of love. It resonates. As Jesus says, you are a light, a light of the world. You are salt. You are flavor to the world. And when you are loving that way, you shine brightly to a dark, lonely world. How can we love so fearlessly? Jesus fearlessly went to the cross. In love, he went to the cross to save you. And what he says is you are now safe in him. There is no more punishment because it's paid in full. Your reputation is safe in Jesus. God will never change his mind about you. You are much loved. You are safe. And he gives you his very spirit. The spirit of God dwells in you. And so now you have power, power that is divine, power that is holy, to love others with the very love that God has so loved you. Jesus has laid down his life in love. So let us fearlessly love one another. Would you pray with me? God, we come to you realizing that this stuff is hard. It's easy to talk about it, but it's challenging to do. So God, we ask now, by your spirit, would you fill us up? Would you remind us of this love? This love that first came to us, we didn't have to get our act together. You loved us while we were yet enemies. Jesus, you came and laid down your life. May that love embolden us to fearlessly love those around us. God, we pray that this church would be different because of love. We pray that our community would be different because of love. God, would you use us to love in this way? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.